Mormon Stories Podcast is a production of the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to Mormon Stories are fully tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. This podcast is also available in high-definition video at youtube.com slash mormonstories. Come, come, ye saints, no toil nor labor fear, but with joy wend your way. Hello and welcome to another edition of Mormon Stories Podcast. Uh, as I'm always want to say, a special edition of Mormon Stories Podcast. Um, today we have a special guest, for me a very special guest, and also we're sort of announcing a new project podcast in, uh, in conjunction. And so there's a lot to do today. Um, my guest today is Dr. Philip Barlow. Uh, he, um, if I had a short list of maybe, you know, if I had started Mormon Stories with a short list of maybe five or ten people that I really wanted to interview, Dr. Barlow definitely or Phil definitely would have been uh, on that short list. In fact, the first uh, URL that I ever grabbed, the first domain name that I ever grabbed was A Thoughtful Faith um, before I ever grabbed Mormon Stories because that's how I thought uh, about framing the podcast. And it was based on this book that we're going to talk about in just a second called A Thoughtful Faith. But um, Dr. Barlow, uh, you know, he's not an attention seeker. He's not a grandstander. My guess is that that unless you're into Mormon studies, many of you will, will not have heard of um, Phil Barlow. Yet, in my estimation, at least in the in the areas that I'm most interested in, um, I consider him to be one of the most important uh, Latter-day Saints in the 20th slash 21st century, again, as it relates to sort of what I see as the future of what I'll call thoughtful and faithful Mormonism. Um, I remember after I finished my interview with Terrell Givens, uh, I was just so impressed by his knowledge and memory and um, thoughtfulness about his faith. And I asked him just out of excitement, is there anybody else in Mormonism that that could do something comparable to what we just did today? And his answer was Philip Barlow. Um, Dr. Barlow is the Arrington Chair of Mormon History and Culture here at Utah State University, where we're recording this uh, interview in 2012. Um, he has his MTS, which I'm assuming is a Master's of Theological Studies, and his PhD from Harvard University in uh, Religion and American Culture and History of Christianity. He is the author or editor of several books, including a book that uh, my friend Ann Peffer says is one of her favorite books in Mormonism, Mormons in the Bible, The Place of the Latter-day Saints in American Religion. And he's also, he's also the editor of this book, A Thoughtful Faith, which was, um, which has been and continues to be an instrumental book for me, uh, within Mormonism. He's a past president of the Mormon Historical Association. Um, and he's currently serving as a high councilman in a stake here in Logan. So he's an active, um, and I think he would be comfortable saying believing Latter-day Saint. Uh, what, you know, the reason why I think an interview like this is so important is it, it definitely 
will belong will belong aside of my interviews with Richard Bushman and Terrell Givens in that um, there's this sort of common assumption on the internet today within sort of oh let's say disaffected Mormonism that if you are informed about Mormonism if you know all the history if you're activated by some of the cultural issues that vex um, you know investigating Mormons like racism or feminism or sexism or homosexuality uh, you know once you sort of become enlightened to those dynamics then you certainly cannot um, remain a sincere believing participant of Mormonism and also maintain your integrity uh, that either you need to sort of live in denial or be deceptive or, or disingenuous in how you talk about your faith, or you just need to be ignorant of, of these difficulties. But you certainly, almost like the theodicy, you know, you certainly can't totally know and be aware and be honest and open and still be believing and participating. That, that there's three legs of that stool where one of them has to fall um, if you're going to stay engaged with the church. And I would, I would just sort of say, and here Phil Barlow stands, um, definitely aware, uh, probably more aware than any of us listening of a lot of things that, that are causing people to leave Mormonism today. I, I definitely wouldn't say that he's dishonest or deceptive in how he approaches his faith. And he's definitely believing and participating. So the purpose of this interview is to sort of talk a bit about his life, but most importantly, to establish maybe one potential framework for a 21st century Mormon belief. Now, Phil, I know you well enough to know that you would never want to hold yourself up as a role model for people, because I find you to be kind of a, a modest, non-assuming kind of individual. Nonetheless, people are looking for role models, people who are both thoughtful and faithful. And my fear is that if we don't have those role models, um, we're going to continue to lose and maybe even lose more people. And I'm assuming that you would feel that that would be a loss to our community. So before we actually dive into the interview, um, this book, uh, A Thoughtful Faith, has become sort of the foundation for a new project that we want to pilot within uh, Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation and maybe even launch um, outright. We have a team of like 30 or 40 people who have signed up to be a part of this project. Um, my friend Micah is leading it along with a lot of other really good people. But the idea is to launch a podcast series dedicated to thoughtful faith. In other words, we're going to interview, and this team is going to interview, it won't necessarily be me doing the interviews, but we're going to interview as many people as we can who are models of thoughtful, faithful Mormonism sort of in the 21st century. So you can, you, you'll be able to access that podcast at athoughtfulfaith.org. Uh, we'll have a reference to this book, um, A Thoughtful Faith, which is no longer in print, but uh, my understanding is that Greg Coford is considering not only doing a reissue of this book, but I've been talking to him a little bit about maybe even a new version or two. And maybe, Phil, you've talked to him about that as well. But I would love to have this project result in 
let's just say a good 40 or 50 hours or more of interviews with with some of the um, leading thoughtful faithful Mormons today to serve as role models for those who want to find reasons or ways uh, to remain in the church. And so I'm announcing that uh, project now. Uh, these these interviews, some of them will be included in the Mormon Stories podcast stream. Others will just stay on the A Thoughtful Faith podcast stream. Um, but uh, this will be one of the first interviews in that project. And so with that, uh, Dr. Phil Barlow, welcome to Mormon Stories and A Thoughtful Faith. My pleasure. <laughs> Are you uncomfortable with that introduction? <laughs> All right. Well, um, you know, one of the things that we do in Mormon stories is start by having you talk a little bit about your early years in the church and any formative stories or experiences that you feel like uh, have helped shape your perspective today. And so it's kind of a, a broad question to say, talk about your early years in the church, but maybe you could just uh, walk us a little bit through some of your early experiences uh, or stories that that you would consider to be formative in maybe your thoughtful slash faithful perspective today. Mm. Well, my younger years uh, were, I don't know what the word traditional might mean since um, Mormons, as I'm fond of saying, are not made from cookie cutters, and Mormon families are not made from cookie cutters. But I was raised in a fully active uh, Latter-day Saint family. Both um, folks, uh, both parents were active, and we had a good experience in church uh, growing up. Um, sneaking into the church at midnight to play basketball like Typical boys, thoroughly enmeshed in, this is in Bountiful, Utah. Um, I'm one of six brothers and two sisters. I'm the fourth, and in our growing up years, everybody was active. Um, a couple of them are not in their adult um, years. And um, pretty typical, we can probe that more if you like, but pretty typical, just a good experience in church um, but not a critical or thoughtful one until I got to college um, at Weber State College. I had a philosophy professor by the name of Jennings Olson. He was one of the um, famous swearing elders with Strain McMurrin and company. And he, um, when I first came off my mission, uh, which I went to in Haight-Ashbury, San Francisco, um, cool experience on what year mission. what year would you have been there? 69 to 71 oh so you were in Haight ashbury right during there was stuff going on <laughs> i walked across the stanford campus and they used to misunderstand us for fbi agents and um so there was a lot going on my friends had all gone to exotic uh, locales around the globe and i felt a little domestic in uh, being called to Central California, but the truth is I had a fabulously interesting mission, lots of challenges, and lots of people willing to talk. Two years or three? Two. Two years, okay. Should have had a third one just to learn the foreign culture of uh, the Bay Area, but um, just for the English speaking. I don't want to. I don't want to be discourteous to my listeners or viewers, but I think there's going to be some people who don't understand what Haight Ashbury is. But let me just tell you, as I understand it, it's sort of where 
you know, the hippie movement where the free love movement, all the Woodstock kind of stuff, it kind of all emerged out of that little, little community, it seems. And, uh, you would have been there right during that Woodstock Beatles kind of time frame. Is that right? Yeah. And I wasn't particularly culturally mature or informed. I had, I encountered all that with rather wide eyes. But it, um, only a year or two before the nation was on fire with race riots, it was a lively time, Vietnam, Vietnam War still going. So lots of interesting conversations in California. Had a rich, good, challenging, growing experience there. When I came back and went to college, um, in my first class, it was an honors philosophy class, meaning that there were only six or eight people in the class. And um, Professor Olson, who was a very nice, very smart man, um, gracious to a fault, very formal and polite, um, but he asked questions or made comments that seemed to me um, derogatory towards the church. And as a fresh raw missionary, after a few such um, comments or, or class periods, I at last raised my hand and said, yeah, but, and um, then he engaged me and we were the only ones who talked for the rest of the period back and forth. And then the next class period, he came in loaded with books from his chin to his um, hands like this, including the Book of Mormon and Joseph Fielding Smith, and plopped them ceremoniously on the table and we started interrogating them under his um, guidance so that uh, as we run the religious studies program here at, Uni uh, at Utah State University, that seems kind of like a foreign experience, but that's what happened. So that's when I started thinking critically about um, Mormon things, Mormon philosophy, theology, history. So so up until that, that point where this professor starts hitting you with some of the hard questions. Did you have what you would consider to be some pillars in a in a faith? And and if so, what what were those pillars? Yeah, I'm not sure I had any reason to be deeply thoughtful. I was naive and young. Um, so I had faith in the Book of Mormon. It felt true in my hand as I walked along uh, the streets of Oakland and San Francisco. Um, found it edifying, found some of it puzzling, of course, I'm sure, but they weren't in-depth, thoughtful questions. They were, I certainly ran into questioning um, on my mission, as I just said, but I didn't have any um, education to speak of to gain traction in, the, in critical thinking about them. Okay, so nothing in your mission was particularly troubling or alarming. You came off your mission guns a-blazing, faithful guns a-blazing, yeah, um, that might be a theatrical phrase for it, but solid believing, practicing, and happy as a Latter-day Saint. It was a good good lifestyle. So did you emerge from this class with, with this professor troubled or disturbed or just excited about new questions and thinking? Uh, I don't feel that I was, I don't remember feeling lacerated, but certainly um, there were new issues back in those days. It wasn't public knowledge um, that there were multiple um, accounts of Joseph Smith's first vision um, that didn't line up 
neatly and simply, and so um, he spent a session or two laying all that out, and I didn't know about things like that. He raised archaeological questions about the historicity of the Book of Mormon, so so there were things to confront uh, that early. Did you get the sense that he was a believer? No, by no means. He was. Um, he had been a Mormon, but it was clear that he wasn't a believer. Okay. Any time I wanted to check something out or was on a research project in that class, I think he had something of a photographic memory, so he would like to f flaunt it. It was kind of charming and impressive and braggadocio. Um, so he would assign me to go check some book, and he'd say, oh, and I think the call number is thus and so, and he'd, he'd hmm. look in his mind and have access to this. Um, considerable knowledge. So he was an impressive guy along those lines, but he was not a believing Latter-day Saint. So you had this sort of early, I don't want to, I don't know if you want to call him a mentor, but an early teacher guide who was a non-believer putting, putting to you these very difficult issues. Was that, how was that for you emotionally? Yeah, I I think I'm half amnesiac on all these things, so I'm not positive I can give an accurate rendition of my emotional or psychological state in response to them, but they raised questions, but they weren't tearing me in half. I was just sorting through them. Um, I think his questions were relevant, not the only thing informing, but relevant to my ultimate decision to go study religion formally uh, when I eventually did that. I graduated in 1975 with a degree in history and a lot of psychology mixed in there. And then I stalled for a couple of years studying languages. I thought I'd go on to graduate school, but I didn't have a clear path in what. And the study of religion hadn't occurred to me because there were there were no programs at Weber State where I was studying, nor in the state generally. Um, to study religion formally as in a place that you could um, major in religion. So it never crossed my mind. Had you read Fawn Brody by that point? I think it was in those years. Yeah, I think I would have been in college when I encountered Fawn Brody. Okay. Okay. So I This mean, is you... not the Joseph I was raised with. I had that experience like others do, of course, um, encountering her work. Right. Okay, so you, you pretty much probably had a decent grasp then of the issues that, that vex people today, or at least a, a, an introduction to them. Maybe an introduction to them. Yeah. Okay. So what was it like to go to Harvard and, and really study religion in depth? Yeah. Well, it was fabulous, but it was a struggle. I, as I say, I stalled for a couple of years till I found my calling, and then I met a new friend in Ogden who had gone back there to study religion, and I met him between his first and second years of his graduate program, and I learned, and then I was electrified, like, man, I got to go do that, and so then I applied and went back there and learned afterwards that he had had a very hard time. It had been hard on his faith, and he didn't like that, and... Um, and therefore didn't really like his experience back there, although I'm sure he recognizes that it had some 
value, but I went back there and had to encounter that, so it was thrilling to um, plunge in, and I went back there intending to study everything but Mormonism. I thought I understood Mormonism, and um, eventually it was... Um, I learned that there were smarter people than me and that there were a lot more experienced people than me, so I was surrounded by a lot of people who were wonderful, admirable, but also daunting. And um, so I had to work my way through that, and um, it's in that context that I had the opportunity to question myself, my faith, belief in God, or Mormonism more thoroughly, of course. So the, the Harvard years were, were what years from when to when? I did a master's degree there until um, 1980. and then Starting when? In 77. So 77 to 80, master's. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and then um, I had to sort out what to do, and I got invited into the doctoral program, but I also got invited to... Um, a job with the Elias Institute there in Cambridge, and I wanted to do both of those, so I did both of those, so I slowed down um, my doctoral program track and um, and took that job and did that on the side. And so you finished your Ph.D.? I didn't finish till 88. I got interrupted for a couple of years. I left Cambridge in 1985 and uh, took a year's pause and then um, went back and finished my generals and came back to Salt Lake City because I had migrated to the idea of doing a dissertation on Mormonism, which turned out to be Mormonism and the Bible, uh, the basis for Mormonism and the Bible that you just um, mentioned earlier. So kind of 11-ish years from beginning to end? Well, from a master's degree, from when I entered the doctoral program, it was eight years before I had the dissertation finished. Yeah, okay. okay. Not a world record-setting pace. No, but... So do you remember, if if you started, would you say that you struggled or even had a crisis of faith at Harvard then? Yeah. Crisis is a wonderfully elastic word, kind of a slow-motion um long developing crisis, do I really believe what I thought I believed, and do I have responsible, informed, ethical grounds for believing what I thought I believed, and um, and how shall I know that? Um, the traditional Mormon answers to that of um, pray, and you'll be told that had to intersect with the content of what I was studying, including epistemological issues of how do we how do we know when we're doing wish fulfillment how do we know when we're uh, making up our own thoughts how you know, since we live in our consciousness how shall we discern our consciousness from exterior influences of the divine if there be the divine um, arguments for and against God the parochialism of my own mind uh, the smallness of my experience um, my sense of the superiority of Mormonism without really understanding other religions and their histories, let alone difficulties in my own faith's history. So all those questions that um, are, they've been around for um, many decades or in some ways since the beginnings of Mormonism, but um, in the age of the Internet and a shrunken world, they've taken on um, 
a different sort of atmosphere today, I think, but it was those sort of things while I was studying religion and as such and other religions as such, trying to lo locate myself and what I really thought and felt in that context. And those those things that you mention, I kind of think of them as kind of the bigger questions, the broader questions that really transcend Mormonism that any believing or non-believing person in the world would have to would have to grapple with whether it's whether it's the existence of God or theodicy or um, the relative truthfulness between religious traditions. What about the particularities, the questions or the concerns regarding the particularities of Mormonism, the you know Joseph Smith and and polygamy or you know the the historicity of the Book of Mormon, were those all things that were also part of that faith struggle for you? Sure. The wider questions um, can be threatening to a Mormon faith in particular, as well as to non-Latter-day Saints. Um, or they can be the opposite. Um, if I can work myself through the idea of a literal, physical resurrection, then I can work my way through smaller miracles, um, whether performed by Jesus or in Mormon history or not. So, um, yeah, certainly Mormon particularities are all, all had to be addressed as, as part of that. So the, uh, what is the Book of Mormon and what is Revelation? And the claims are fantastic and outrageous. And how shall I weigh all those? So Mormon and meta-Mormon questions. So do you remember any particular moments of real concern or distress? Some type of moments of truth or even contemplation of disbelieving or disaffiliating? Like how dramatic or non-dramatic did it kind of get for you? Just for those who are saying, who are trying to, maybe there's, there are some listening who are saying, did he ever really get to the brink like I am right now or like I, not me personally, but my listener, like they might be or might have reached, did it ever reach a, a point of sort of severity or of, of high distress for you? Yeah, very high distress. Um, separating it out from other distresses in life is a little tricky because they were all intermingled, but... Um, you mentioned a thoughtful faith, and um, in an, in my essay, in that collection of essays, I talk about a statue across the street from my office in the Longfellow um, Park Church there on Brattle Street, a few blocks from Harvard Square, which is where the Institute office was also. And across the street, um, there's a statue, a life-size statue with... Um, it took me a while to figure out that it was um, supposed to represent Christ. I just thought it represented the human condition, and you can merge those two concepts at some point. And um, I used to spend, I used to think my cheerful, Mormon, positive faith and friends in Cambridge that people weren't studying religion like I was, and that... Um, while it's a very thoughtful, engaged place, they weren't um, encountering what I was encountering. Uh, 
Probably some of them were, and I could have found more conversation partners, but it felt kind of lonely and isolated, and there was not a um, critical mass of people like there are today, um, fellow graduate students studying religion. There were a few others here and there. And uh, so I spent a lot of time with that uh, statue that I named Anguish, um, Lord, where are you? Or I'm drowning here and not knowing this. Um, so tears, uh, loneliness, and then uh, some personal struggles in wider life um, got in the way. My wife ended up leaving the church and we ended up getting a divorce, not particularly over religion, but, but that was... Um, important to us when we arrived in Cambridge and evolution happened. So on other grounds, we decided it was the most constructive thing to leave, and that was an agonizing um, thing. So I do remember having a pit in my stomach for the better part of a year uh, that, that this is what anxiety feels like, and some portion of that was... Um, Barlow's don't get divorced, how can this be? And some of it was certainly um, religious, philosophical um, struggles. So, sounds like some dark times for you. Yeah, I, I uh, remember actually, this will be a humbling sort of a thing to admit publicly, but it's true, I remember a time or two getting in my car and getting on the freeway and screaming all the way for... Uh, I don't know for how long, but needing a physical, uh, emotional outlet. It wasn't like I was um, any more nutty than I usually am, but I needed some sort of release, and it felt, as as Jean-Paul Sartre, the philosopher, would have said, like, no exit. There was no door out of here. And um, so that helps me remember I was in some some emotional difficulty. Knowing you, that's hard for me to imagine you driving down the freeway screaming. That's a strange-sounding picture even to me, but uh, <laughs> got, got that disturbing. Okay. So, how did you... And, and I, guess, I guess it's also worth noting, and you refer to this in your recent Sunstone Wise State presentation, but you, you had made a decision to to cast your lot with the Institute program, probably it's some personal sacrifice or cost, maybe. And then what an, happened? An economic cost, because the living was modest, and a um, conversation with myself about whether I wanted to stay on an academic track and um, enter university life in the longer run or whether I wanted to do institute. And I had a fabulous experience back there with the Institute in Cambridge, and it's an unusual collection of uh, people, again, many of them smarter than me, and uh, so we had great explorations there, and I had a good time. Are there people we'd know that you had the privilege to teach? Um, let's see. I might have to give that a little thought. I could certainly name a lot of wonderful people, but when you say, would we know them, have they become public figures? Um, I taught some of the Richard and Claudia Bushman children who were very accomplished people, but they're not public intellectuals like, the, uh, like their parents are. Um, Steve Huffner, um, Bill Bradshaw, um, you know um, from work on... Um, 
issues of uh, gay and lesbian um, matters. Uh, BYU professor I only learned um, last week, I guess, when he came and introduced himself, that he was the father of a really terrific uh, student um, of mine, one of my favorites, who's a Bart Bradshaw, who's a practicing physician. So they're accomplished and wonderful. I'm not sure who's public. So a lot of the children of many of the people that we might know in, in Ed Geary, the wonderful um, literature, wonderful short story and novelist writer from BYU, his brilliant son, Edward Geary, um, Chase and Greta Peterson's uh, two sons and daughter, um, so folks like that. People that in, the, in 2012 would be kind of in their mid-40s? Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. Okay. So, and yeah, mere children, John. What? Mere children. <laughs> right. Thank you. I'll take it. Um, yeah, so what happened? Tell, tell us real quickly what happened with that job, just because I, I think that that's a formative experience for you, maybe. Yes. Well, I was um, treated in very gentle tones of, of uh, love and counseling, but was in essence um, fired, let go from the job sympathetically by people who, um, actually the people in the church education system tried to um, preserve my job so it wasn't an accusation that I had done some um, great wrong. And the circumstances were actually a little um, unusual, but probably not appropriate to go into the details for um, respect for my friend and former wife. Um, but anyway, there was an unwritten rule that um, divorced people couldn't remain uh, teaching in the institute system, and um, they had conversations about that and tried to request if that policy could be reconsidered or given specific application to a real particular situation, and the answer came down no. So that's a lot of words to say. I was fired from the church education system, and be and that was, I think, as you were asking earlier, or maybe implying by your question, that was um, traumatic in that time when I was having an economic stress and a um, faith challenge. I was still faithful, but still challenged as I sorted through those to also be fired and um, take my two children back to back home to Bountiful, Utah, to sort out what I was, what road I was going to go on now, so that um, was not helpful at the time. And just to capture it in the story, part of the logic that they used in the dismissal was what? Around having to teach a class or counsel? Yeah, they said to one, um, again, nice man, nice person, so um, I don't mean to be unfairly critical, just said... Um, it's too bad it has to be that way, but how would it be for you if you were asked to teach a course on marriage and family, and there you would be this um, divorced person, and the implication was that isn't the modeling that we want to set up for young people. So um, I might have liked it better if I was invited to help write curriculum or something at the time, but anyway, that was their policy and decision. And so how... Was that 
how, how was that experience for you over it? Was that like insult to injury as you've just been divorced, as you're struggling in your crisis of faith? I imagine that I might have felt even rejected by my church. Yeah, or abandoned or something. Those feelings come. Um, the church, like other employers, don't have the obligation to employ you. So I think in the middle of the hurt, it would be possible for me to have been self-pitying and stuff too. So I don't mean to vilify them. It isn't a policy I would advise if they came and asked my opinion. But it's also true that I'm too close to the situation or certainly was in the middle of that stew um, having those different realms of crises amount to a kind of a life crisis that um, it, it didn't feel comforting at the time. Right. Now, parallel but to this... They're oh, humans doing, right. doing the best they can. Right. Parallel to this, I'm thinking mid-'80s now, um, you know, Sunstone, you know, Dialogue would have been started in the 60s. Leonard Arrington would have had his his Camelot years all through the 70s, and then Sunstone would have really been gaining steam in the mid-80s. And so for Mormon studies... Gaining steam and evolving, not right. just growing and accelerating, but its character evolving. From the Peggy Fletcher kind of years to the Albert Peck years, is that kind of what you mean? Yeah, I'll, I'd have to lay out the history, but the um, yeah, a lot of other influences, so the character in my experience of what it was like to attend Sunstone um, naturally has a there's a biography to be written of Sunstone or dialogue or just as there is the church uh, unfolding and so it wasn't just momentum but the flavor of who was there and what they were saying and what it was founded for versus what had become culturally weren't the same it was originally um, as was dialogue by people operating critically, wanting to ask all and any questions, uh, sort of as you do on your podcasts, but um, its founders were operating from within the premises of faith, or as they adopted St. Anselm for their moniker uh, at Sunstone, faith-seeking understanding. Um, and at times, um, I think it became... Um, an exercise in whining or um, how to work out your personal demons. And so say, uh, my point is you can't just say sunstone and have it mean the same thing it evolved. Right. To what extent um, were you plugged into or aware of or participating in or affected by um, Leonard Arrington, Dialogue, and then Sunstone? during late 70s, early 80s, mid-80s? Oh, well, I liked to, when I was in the vicinity or had the means to get there, go to the... I can't remember when the first symposia were in relation to that time, do you? It would have been late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, seems like that. So I would intend the symposia and find them refreshing, sometimes inspiring, certainly freeing. Um, Leonard Arrington became an acquaintance and um, had lots of good talks with him and certainly was aware of all the commotion. I was writing um, a dissertation 
or um, research that would eventually feed into a dissertation when I left Cambridge and came back to Salt Lake City in 85 and 86. And um, I remember being at the University of Utah Library sometimes and at the church archives, historical archives sometimes. And I remember coming up State Street and um, getting home. And by the time I got home to Bountiful, Mark Hoffman had um, blown himself uh, not blown himself up as in to smithereens, but wounded himself um, near the Deseret Gym there on State Street that I had just driven by. So there was all of that uh, commotion in the historical community and with Hoffman and therefore the general public. So they were lively, lively times. And did you, do you, and I only ask you this just to, to get a sense for whether you were kind of plugged into that zeitgeist a little bit, but were you kind of a reader of dialogue in Sunstone during late seventies, early mid eighties? Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, you kind of knew what was going when on. When I had lived back in uh, Cambridge, Peggy Fletcher then and um, Alan Roberts had come back and talked to me about Sunstone things and things that were going on. So I read as much as I could in the Journal of Mormon History. Right. Okay. So, um, so, what made you um, what made you decide to write to to edit this book? What and, and how did it overlay with these things you were experiencing? Because it was it was released sort of during this time, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, um, that's right. I did um, decide to respond to that um, general series of bruises and um, crises by exploring what is the nature of my allegiance to Mormonism and what would it be like to gather a group of thoughtful people who've encountered reasons to doubt that. And um, I might say I was criticized uh, for that collection for not having uh, more women in it, and I told people I'm only going to say this once. I have asked a half dozen other women who um, have demurred or who weren't available or who agreed but didn't get their essays in. <laughs> On the record, even back in that era, um, I wanted more women, but I did have the privilege of asking um, a number of thoughtful people and not um, homogenized people. I think they're very, uh, there's quite a range of voices and approach that ended up in that collection. But it was an act um, of, how shall I say to myself, what the most constructive case is f um, for my faith and for my allegiance to the church. Did like the church ask you to do this? Did did they no, show interest? I, I hadn't, when I decided to do that, I hadn't decided if I could go back and face my doctoral exams. I, I was so um, bothered by the series of events in my life that I wasn't um, psychologically ready to go face. In fact, they irrationally grew to be Mount Everest. How shall I ever get over my general doctoral exams? Uh, because I stopped thinking well and being able to focus on that task as well. So when I pulled out, it was in that context. So what shall I do that's um, constructive? I decided to try to eke out 
some money from somewhere and um, make sure I could feed my children for a while while I sorted my path out. I took on that project. No one asked me to do it, but it was partly um, a product of that autobiographical moment. And um, I decided to start writing a novel that I intend to get back to as soon as I possibly can on that had to do with evil and suffering and faith, um, inspired by Dostoevsky and Milton and uh, my Mormon background. Um, I'm working on uh, a novel about the war in heaven, so I started making sketches about that and and feeling sorry for myself, no doubt, uh, during that year that I uh, took off before I decided to go back um, to Harvard and finish up things. So this was one of those projects during those years you took off, uh huh. During okay, yeah. And I just, I just want to, you know, anybody who is looking to strengthen their faith, or who is contemplating leaving the church, um, I think, I think they would be making a mistake to not get a copy of this book and at least read through some of the essays here. Um, this contains, you know, some of the authors, Leonard Arrington wrote an essay here, uh, Phil's essay, I just read it this morning, uh, reread it, is so good, but also Mary Bradford, Richard Bushman, um, uh, Richard Paul, his his essay, I think it's called What What the Church Means uh, to People Like Me, the whole Iron Rod Liahona um, speech is in here, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich uh, has an essay in here, Um you know, Eugene England and, um, you know, Emily Thane was hers lusterware. Is that? No, that was Laurel Ulrich. That was Laurel Ulrich, a classic. Um, and, and Emily Thane's was, was, I remember it being fabulous as well. Yes, very good. I've just forgotten the title, but she has uh, great imagery about a wild rope swing of adventure. The landing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this this book is is a classic. It's it's so inspiring and it's so worth reading. Um, and by the way, as we um, republish that, um, I contacted. I've been busy with other things, so I need to get that done, and we'll bring that to fruition. But um, I contacted the living authors. Leonard and others had passed away. Richard Paul, but I contacted the living authors a year or two ago. Uh, to get a little addendum, does what you wrote here really still represent your faith, or would you like to talk a little bit about how that's changed? So there will be a little epilogue on from each of the living authors. Nice, nice. Well, so s something really interesting happened to me for me uh, this morning because I I heard you. Um, I heard you give your talk at Sunstone a few weeks ago on why I stay. And then you sent me a few other essays that you've penned recently, or maybe not so recently, that provide some perspective into your, your faith. And I was thinking, wow, you know, this is clearly the perspective of a mature man who's been thinking about this stuff for a long time. Then this morning I went back and read your essay that you would have written here probably in your 30s and found that that there was a lot of consistency and redundancy between you what, what you had written then and kind of what you're saying today. So in some sense, this essay that you wrote 
back then is still f- very much foundational for how you how you construct your faith or view your faith now. Is that fair to say? Um, I haven't reread that recently, and I would suspect that I would be critical of some of my prose if I were to go do that, but I'm sure there's an organic connection. Um, I'm sure a number of the principles I tried to articulate there would still inform me, um, although I'm always uh, realizing how little I know and therefore growing as I encounter new thoughts and new information, so I'm, I'm sure it would be bigger than that, but right. some continuity. Well, if it's okay, I'm ready to kind of launch into kind of uh, a, a, a part two of this interview. Um, we've talked about your history and kind of what led up to this book and some of the formative things about your faith. Now I kind of want to do something that's a little bit different than I've ever done on Mormon Stories before, because as I think back to my interviews, all my interviews, really, up until now, I was trying to work out difficulties or problems that I had I had with historical issues, um, histor- historicity issues with the Book of Mormon. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of the problems that that people lose their faith over or leave the church over. And so if you listen to my interviews with Tara Givens or with Richard Bushman or Brant Gardner, it's sort of like me coming up with a list of all the difficult things and peppering the the interviewee with the difficult questions to see how they stand, almost like almost like um, it's, you know, a, a court of law and I'm an attorney trying to put someone on the witness stand and and deconstruct and attack their faith. I'm not saying that's what I was consciously trying to do, but I think one could easily interpret a lot of my past interviews in that way. And over the past several months, and really for a long time, I've been feeling like, okay, I've done that. (laughs) You know, (laughs) we've covered polyandry, we've covered DNA, we've covered historicity, we've covered all that stuff. And, you know, that's one, I think it's not an invalid approach to sort of having a dialogue. But something, by the way, don't be too hard on yourself. I've listened to a couple of those and that sort of thing can be overdone or excessively redundant, repeated endlessly with different figures. But someone has to ask hard questions, um, not pull punches, but ask them in a well-intended search for truth. And it seems to me you've done that admirably. Well, thank you. I've tried. It's hard. Um, but but what, what I'm more interested in doing with this Thoughtful Faith Project and beginning with you, and I'm, I'm hoping and assuming that the Thoughtful Faith team is going to share this perspective, um, is I'm more interested going forward in with each individual interview, laying a foundation of faith. So instead of focusing on the problems, starting sort of allowing people to build from the ground up what their foundations of their faith are. And that's a, that's a different way to come at um, this discussion. Yeah. And so that's kind of what I, I want to do now. Um, and I'm going to give you your essay. Um, in, in part three of your essay, 
you sort of lay out, I believe it's it's 15 kind of points, and I'm not going to expect you to cover each one in depth. I'm not going to expect you to remember everything. But what I thought might make sense would be to go through each of those 15 points because you really do start from a very base foundational level, very base, and then you build. And each one of these points I found to be very interesting and very important and relevant to the, um, without trying to be boastful, the thousands of people that I've now talked to who have gone through a faith struggle or are struggling in their faith now. So, so that's what I'd like to do. And again, don't feel the need to recall anything specific or to be comprehensive in any way. Some of these points we might be able to just touch on very lightly. But I think it'd be fun to kind of lay out this foundation as you laid it out in this, in this book and, and see how you construct your faith and approach to the church. And then at the end, we can add whatever new perspectives you might have now to it. Is that all right? Sure, you bet. Okay. So I found it interesting that you start in a very Descartes, Descartian, is that a phrase? Cartesian. Cartesian. <laughs> Sorry, listeners. You start in a very Cartesian way because you start with the, with the uh, pillar number one that you exist. Hmm. Why do you start there? I remember there? Davis Bitten sort of making fun of me for that. Like, <laughs> my, my. <laughs> so the, 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 the opening pillar of your testimony is that you exist. Why is that important and what do you mean by that? I think these um, points we can consider along the lines that you've um, suggested, but it's a l- also a little stilted, so it's not the only way I think. It's not um, like I think faith is arrived at necessarily the best way in a Euclidean logic. Uh, here's the first premise. Like, this is all based on reason. In fact, I, uh, in the preface and in this essay, I take on that presupposition that happens with intellectuals. I don't think the only form of um, important intelligence or epistemological um, avenues to truth necessarily can be reduced to to reason. So I apologize for the stiltedness of it. But um, I guess I was maybe informed by a little bit of graduate school pretense even, for all I know, I'm not sure, um, talking about how we know things and can we know anything about anything, and um, there are philosophical schools that um, not only doubt that, but are quite skeptical, aggressively skeptical, doubt that we can know anything outside our own mind, which is to say possibly outside our own imagination, because whatever reality may be out there, the only access we have to it is how we image it with our ridiculously limited, wondrous, but ridiculously limited five senses or six or seven senses, whatever one argues that we have. And that entails an act of the imagination. Um, And it entails a bit of faith, like I'm really encountering a John DeLynn entity here as we talk, and it's not just a figment of me. And um, to ordinary intelligent people out on the street that will sound absurd why bother with that philosophers wrestle um, in very deliberate long deep ways with it Um, I just thought I'd start with this little paragraph that I'm willing to 
take that step of faith and there's no knowing outside my knowing or knowing outside my imagination at one level, but at another level, I'm perfectly comfortable taking that step of faith, reason, consciousness that I'm here. I'm not starting literally from nowhere, but it, but it does entail faith even at that level. Yeah. I think, I think it's important to, to start there. Um, it is a leap. It is a choice. Um, and sometimes academia and philosophy can become so philosophical that it, it leaves one to feel like there's no ground upon which one can stand. Yeah. And I think that can be, um, as I put it to myself, I don't think that we can think too well and anybody, certainly anybody within who's conversing within or about Mormonism who wants to submerge the mind or the intellect or the reason in favor of the spirit and revelation, um, that's a little problematic because Joseph taught that we are intelligences in our essence. Um, fully as much as we're spirits. Sometimes I think he used those as hyphenated synonyms that were spirit intelligence things. But if not, if those are separable, then the thing that's um, core at the inner core of that is intelligence uh, that had to be Matrushka-like. Russian dolls had to, the intelligence had to be put in spirit, and then the intelligence-spirit had to be incarnated into flesh and bones. So it's either that or intelligence and spirit are the same thing. So I don't think you can submerge that and be true to Joseph Smith's theology, um, and therefore I don't think you can think too well outside Mormonism or within Mormon theology. But you can think too much. I. I know the experience of thinking too much, I've, or people thinking too much. I've been on dates where, in uh, my younger years, where um, my woman friend thought she had to take the pulse and have a conversation about where do we sit now in our relationship um, every other date, and it helped, helped, um, helped undermine the relationship, or... Um, Swimmers who know you can't float on water because they've seen rocks and humans sink are never going to learn to swim that way based on pure reason. You, so you can think too much, you can't think too well. Now you better, uh, I probably got on a tangent there, sparked no. by something you asked and I forgot what it was. Tell me again. No, just do we have a solid ground upon which we can stand? Oh, yeah, and it's not based merely on reason, I guess. That's my bridge. Um, we need to think hard about that, but part of that is intuitional, and intuition is subject to error, but so is reason, subject to error. So we need to have some recipe that welcomes both those. All right. So pillar number two is that God exists, and you've felt his influence. Mormons would say gods exist, right? Yeah. The divine exists, something transcendent exists. Um, Mormon theology deriving from Joseph Smith and uh, more widely from Christianity and Judaism um, takes that that something that exists is 
intelligent rather than utterly impersonal or or um, a force like gravity or dark energy or dark matter. Um, the faith is that it's intelligent. Um, and I have just about zero, I'm interested in listening, but I have just about zero interest in basing my faith on Aristotelian logic or um, Aquinas-type arguments of God's existence, because while I don't want to judge other people, my experience is that ultimate reality is not something we know. We'll have to talk about that word know and knowledge um, when you're ready, but ultimate reality is not something we know. It's something in which we put our trust and and trust is a close is closely related to the concept of faith so i don't mean it to be blind naive faith i don't mean it to be anti intellectual faith um, i don't mean it to be anti scientific if there's anything we can test which is science's essence then i'm all for that let's test but it can't test all sorts of stuff so it's not the only epistemological tool we humans have so i don't I don't have any interest in proving God, but I am available for any friends um, or interviewers who want to, who are seeking for faith and what's the ground of that. And I think we have impulses, we humans, um, that can lead towards thought about and radar about experience, however veiled and cloudy or projected and imagined about the idea of a deity or the experience or truth of a deity. I think um, I think as some philosophers, um, Reinhold Niebuhr as a important 20th century theologian would be an example, would argue against anthropologists of his time that the most fundamental um, thing that makes human hu human humans is their capacity to use tools or their capacity to reason. He argues instead, and not alone, he argues instead that what makes humans most human is their self-transcendence. That is, humans are so constituted and so wired that we, in some measure, step outside ourselves. We can't completely step outside ourselves, but we can look at ourselves and contemplate ourselves and study psychology, um, study ourselves in groups anthropologically or sociologically, that's a remarkable thing to come to terms with. And I'm not sure if there's going to be some way to measure whether that happens in dolphins or chimpanzees or others, but as far as we can tell, we're the creatures who transcend ourselves. And that transcendence it doesn't prove anything about God, but it does um, set up the possibility of the contemplation about transcendent things themselves. And that um, Peter Berger is an interesting mind. I don't know if you've ever read any Peter Berger. I'm a sort of a philosophical sociologist who wrote a book um, called A Rumor of uh, no, not a rumor of angels, but the sacred canopy. 
and that was a sociological approach to something that was a little Freudian, um, how societies and people project a sacred roof over them, a sacred canopy in the universe, because the universe is a very spooky thing, and asteroid can come and blow us all up, or diseases come, or um, the existential problem about we're not safe here, we're vulnerable creatures. And so he wrote a thoughtful, influential analysis um, going about that sociologically. But his, um, the intelligentsia who read him, <coughs> Um, applauded, as they applauded Freud, like, could we get past this naive adolescent religion that we're in as humans and get beyond this God talk because it's clearly an um, individual psychological or social sociological projection. Um, and so then he wrote a sequel to that book called A Room of Angels and say, no, no, that's not at all what I meant. Um, I, as I happen to believe that there's something transcendent. He said the fact that people do wish fulfillment and social projection says Zippo about whether there's a reality out there or not. And so in A Rumor of Angels, he analyzed a series of impulses that humans do towards the transcendent. And I haven't read it for a long time, so I won't try to get too tricky with it. But an example, they're not proofs, but they're signals of are there implications to our impulses to the transcendent? Is it wish fulfillment or are we hotwired to do just that, to imagine and seek and ask about ourselves and our station and whence we came? So he wrote, for instance, this is back, I was reading him when I was back in the Boston area, and he wrote um, a book, uh, he wrote one of his five or six signals of the transcendent was um, about what a mother does when her infant child is disturbed and when the child wakes up in the middle of the night and is disturbed the mother is going to go pick her up and say there there it's all right honey and what the mother means he asserted was not um, it's okay I'm here but when she says everything's okay she means everything like the universe is okay. And I thought, oh, huh, that was interesting, but only several nights later I had just that experience. Um, my little girl got sick in the middle of the night and I got a bunch of pressures the next day. I struggle in there like a mother or father would. I want to sleep. Oh, no, you've thrown up. I've oh, got to clean that up. You've got a fever. Will I ever get back to sleep after I rock you? But then I wake up a little more. It's a privilege to do that. Um, I'm honored to be able to do it, so that's all sort of redeeming. And I started rocking the chair in the rocker in her room and said, it's okay, honey. And then when I said those exact words, I plugged into the unconscious wire I had to the truth of Berger's statement. I really was, without being conscious of it, saying everything is all right, not just you'll be all right. I was saying something bigger instinctively. Again, that's not a proof, but he gives gallows humor, uh, the capacity for condemned prisoners who are going to be hanged in the morning that, um, to transcend the situation and make humor of it. And he maps out a psychology and a 
philosophy behind it. Anyway, you could explore a whole realm where where hum we humans have instincts toward seeking the transcendent. Are they homing devices or wish fulfillment? There's no proving that, but but that instinct towards God and the transcendent can't, in my judgment, be reduced to a, we know Freud has just explained away all religion. How does it manifest itself in your life? Um, you gave the example of, of your daughter, but is it through whisperings? Is it through creative inspiration? What are the non-empirical or non-logical, non-intellectual um, uh, manifestations of the divine for you? Um, well, again, that word know always has an asterisk for me because so, I don't pretend to know in the way that I know that I exist, as we were just talking about, or that I believe that I know, have faith that you exist, and that we're really having an authentic conversation because I can trust empirically something of my senses about your reality. Um, and my access to God is more um, veiled and imagined than that. Although, again, I'm not afraid of that word imagine. I try to be self-critical about it and aware of how that can go wild. But I think the imagination may be a very good place to find God, to experience um, the possibility of God. So um, part of it takes place in the imagination. And when you say non-intellectual, again, I don't think the rational is the only form of important intelligence. So I think it's quite intellectual, but it's not what we ordinarily mean by that word. It's... Um, supra-rational, possibly, as opposed to irrational. Um, so it ex um, I, um, part of it's logical, like I experience, um, part of it's logical, but um, logical-intuitional, I um, recognize that I don't exist of my own accord on this planet. I'm contingent or dependent. That's what Schleiermacher thought was the origin of the religious impulse, is one's consciousness of one's dependency on the outside, um, which isn't going to inspire skeptics. So again, that doesn't prove anything, but uh, it is related to this transcendent um, idea that we seek. Um, I have a keen sense that... I'm beckoned to something higher. I, like Walt Disney's Simba, can almost hear Mufasa, his father who has passed on, calling from the sky, saying, Simba, Philip, you are more than you have become. I, I experience a, a growth impulse, a yearning impulse. Uh, what Augustine famously said as... Our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. That when I aspire to things and sometimes achieve them, I can feel their relativeness or their hollowness if they work like idolatry, if they don't lead me to something higher yet, a truth, a, a God, a principle, a something that's ultimate beyond all our small g gods and 
aspirations and idolatries that that get in the way. So I feel called to something higher and finer and better and more, which um, fits in nicely with Mormon theology, but I experience that. Do I experience it just because I was taught it? Uh, surely I was taught some of it. I've had an adult lifetime to reflect and probe it, so I don't think that says anything about its truth or falseness ultimately any more than you were taught algebra. Uh, that doesn't make it false just because you were taught it, right? Um, so none of those are proof things. None of those are rational um, Aquinas, rational, logical arguments for God. But I experience... Um, I'm answering this too circuitously, so I'll try to no. bring it to a close. I'm sorry no, no, to go no, all no, over no, the don't, place. Don't but, hurry. This is really important. Um, I said a little allusion in that sunstone talk on why I stay uh, the other day that's important to me, and that is I recognize that there's an element of choice in my choice to believe or to disbelieve, um, that the world is so odd. A-W-E-D or O-D-D? Um, we ought to be awed by it, A-W-E-D, but it is so odd, O-D-D. It is so curious, it is so outrageous, the fact that I love my friends, my bride, my parents, and that they disappear on me and break my heart is too outrageous to exist. The fact that I sweat or grow little hair things out of my chin or that I sit here with two long skinny legs and walk like an erector set for locomotion. Everything about everything from some angle of visions is just too weird um, and, and implausible. But it's, um, but it's here. And then everything is too awesome, A-W-E, so wondrous, so beautiful, the, the beauty of a human face or a human intelligence or human nobility or sunsets or the universe is also awesome that um, you're struck. People, we people are struck with um, there is something transcendent that's impossible. How can you doubt it? But, so there's those two poles and Voltaire put it um, as I mentioned in my talk that and I may be getting the words adjectives backwards but its point is to believe in God is impossible not to believe is absurd. And there is an existential, what universe are you going to live in? What, there, is, um, there is logic, there's arguments for and against God, there's these intuitions or transcendent impulses that I allude to, but there's also an element of choice in there. If you want to see a brilliant but almost neurotic wrestle, try reading Tolstoy's Confessions. He goes on for the first hundred pages of that book, if you've ever read it. Um, I've got all this doubt. I'm about to die and fall over an existential abyss. And no, 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 I see through that now, and it's all true. And he goes back and forth for a hundred um, pages. And then he ends and realizes that I do, I, Tolstoy, do recognize and believe that I exist and this is more in harmony, the belief is more in harmony with the actuality that I exist. But there's really no proving that. You could do that and in, ad infinitum. 
So there's part of my recipe of faith is um, a choice, but it's not intellectual compromise because um, the me who knows what it's like to almost choose disbelief or to temporarily choose disbelief or the friends that I have who um, believe they've seen through things and now disbelieve. I, I recognize in them and their language and their manner and their character when I know them um, well enough to know them. I see that at work as I do in myself. So, so that doesn't um, prove anything either and I am entirely comfortable with that. Again, utter reality is not something I know with absoluteness. It's something in which I put my trust and quite comfortably. I'm comfortable with all the questions and all my atheist friends wanting to shoot holes in that, but I'm also entirely comfortable with that choice. How important is an anthropomorphic nature or state of God to you in, in your construction of, of belief in the divine? How essential is it? How central or important? Yeah. Well, I allow in the spirit of what I've said, so you'll have to forgive redundance, but I don't want you or any of your viewers, listeners, to forget that I have um, a seasoning of agnosticism in everything that I'm saying about my faith. Um, and, and for those who haven't thought about that word, you mean not knowing. Is that what you mean by yeah, agnostic? Gnosis comes from a word to know, and A negates that, so not knowing. Um, and I am not, I don't define myself as an agnostic. I'm a theist and a faithful theist, and I cast my life that way, but um, with all my knowing, including my knowing of um, the authenticity about whether Fred is my friend or not, there's, I don't know, know that, um, but I know enough to my life on it or my time on it. Um, so I don't um, know that God is anthropological, as you put it, anthropomorphic, um, rather. Um, Joseph taught that, and I haven't met God in that direct empirical way, so I don't have direct experience with that. But um, I think the idea is profound. It's a lot of people want to dismiss that as anthropomorphism. You can't help but you're a human and you project your humanity into your pet and onto the sky and God's got a great big beard and all that. So um, we do do that and that's a possible intellectual error, reasoning error, but um, it's not a silly thing to say about me, this self-transcendent being who can contemplate himself and outer reality to to be oriented to the notion that God is, might be intelligent or supra-intelligent rather than sub or non-intelligent. Um, that that's not silly or superficial necessarily. Um, so Joseph's Anthropomorphism might be simple projection of anthropomorphism if one were standing outside Mormonism and saying what's possible. Or it might be, as he felt, I think, because he thought it was radical, he thought it was extreme and counter to the religion of his day, it might be 359 degrees away from anthropomorphism 
to theomorphism. That is, it's not so much that we're projecting um, a humanity onto God as we're responding and taking quite earnestly the biblical notion that we're made in the image of God. And traditional Christians take that image to be not physical form. But I, I rather am drawn to um, Joseph Smith's insistence on the importance of physicality. I think um, I understand where Gnostics and Christian scientists and many traditional, more traditional Christians or, or Buddhists are horrified by depending on the physical too much because it's also transient and it's subject to uh, disease and death as the Buddha apparently discovered uh, on the way to enlightenment. So I understand all that, but um, in the philosophical realm of why is there something rather than nothing, there seems to be something and part of it seems to be physical and I think the physical is a terrific thing that exists rather than not existing. I like touch a lot and one of the things that uh, inspires me that I take pleasure in playfully and that symbolizes the divine for me is simply the breeze, the smell of the breeze, the feel of the breeze, the appearance of the effects of the breeze and all those leaves that dance um, reminds me of Jesus' saying of um, the spirit blows where it listeth, blows where it will blow. Um, or as Carolyn Pearson, um, whom I've read with some of her stuff with admiration and who's a friend of yours, um, wrote early on whether she still holds to this or not, but in earlier years one of her lines was, all, cre all calls out for form. That's, and that goes hand in glove with Joseph's notion of um, creation being uh, pulling into order, fashioning out of chaos, um, all cries out for form. So I like the physical. I don't find it a trivial notion to think that we might be literally theomorphic, um, and that's not 180 degrees away from anthropomorphism. That's 359 degrees away from... So I'm drawn to those ideas. Do I know them with some assurance or not? No, I know that um, I have some faith in Joseph Smith and I live with those conceptions in my head. I orient myself that way and I also um, believe that I don't know very much. I'm a tiny little speck in a big universe so when you ask the question that way how important is it? I comfortably lean into that as a working model and faith but the more metaphysical we get and the more cosmic and the more out there beyond my life, the less I'm actually putting my weight on that ground. Those are my horizons and my wider framework, and I like them. I'm drawn to them, and I don't know anything about them till I know them more <laughs> than I know. Right. Okay. I'm using too many words to get to answer. No, not at all. <clears throat> I'm hanging on every word. I'm sure our listeners are too. And viewers. Okay, so point three you had was the world and I have purpose. I feel like you've kind of talked about that a bit, but I but I want to leave you a chance to 
address or expand on that if if you that was a very short paragraph in this essay as you <laughs> notice so um it derives uh from the notion from a belief that there's god and that um and that creation exists for um when the philosophers ask why is there something rather than nothing um i think in the mind of he, she, they, the creator of this stuff, that um, since I have a faith in an intelligence in deity, that, that that's purposeful. Um, I also um, call on Viktor Frankl's profound, still profound, not too many books that have impact in their time remain profound, but I think his man's search for meaning um, still seems like a profound book. I, one of my studies, if I ever get around to it, is um, to do a study of um, people's faith when they're in prison or when they're um, facing death, um, because there's a sort of a upping the ante, playing for keeps thing, like with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, for instance, that forced him to a deeper meditation and rumination to to truth and it forced him to considerable insight. I think I think Frankel was in a position like that in the Nazi concentration camps. He just happened to be smart and trained and could could think better than most of us could in a situation like that. And his book is poorly titled Man's Search for Meaning, at least at least if that were to suggest the thesis of the book. Um, because his part of his point is you don't search for meaning and get fulfilled in some ways if you're in a Nazi death camp and your wife dies and everything you love your your means of a wealth and your love of your life and your home is gone your health and your comfort is gone you don't get to meaning by looking under a rock and holding your breath or finding a guru on top of a mountain and saying, here's the meaning, John, of life. Um, rather, that's what Frankel calls super-meaning. That may exist, but it's super or supra, that is outside our universe. It's outside what's accessible to you. So your task is to create meaning. It's not a search as in there's one true answer that's going to come to you. Your job is a search to fashion it, find it, discover it, make it. Um, so it might be man's making of meaning or the human forging of meaning. And I think there's a lot of truth to that idea about where our attention should go, not just the world. However, I put it here, the, the world and I have purpose. But partly I think we respond to the existential conditions that we're in and we create purpose or we find adversity and we bring courage or intelligence or nobility into being by responding to that stuff, that resistance coming to us. But that that implies a kind of a purpose. So I want to go a little beyond Frankel at that point. Um, that becomes soul-making. If I'm forging purpose in the face of trial, 
this is what I'm choosing to live for. So that's my meaning for living, my reason for living. In the act of making those choices, those value judgments, those moral choices, as Frankel said, in those conditions, the best among us did not come back because they were willing to sacrifice rather than just preserve. Um, you can't help but while you're forging meaning, whether you're an atheist or a theist or whatever, a Mormon or not a Mormon, you're, f you're bringing yourself into being. <laughs> And and then you could step back and say, that's a meaning and that's a purpose. And it's kind of traditional in some ways and certainly very Mormon. It's a soul-making exercise. And I think some of that's going on even if there's not a God. So I'm, I, I think there's a purpose there, God or not. I just happen to be a God-believer, purpose-believer. And then, and then you move right to, I would say, after some assertions of faith and conviction, I would say some, some points about humility, where you say, I am ignorant, and, and the existence on earth bewilders, yet, yet we're equipped with tools for learning. Um, and uh, then you want to say that we can't escape our culture. You know, you, you breathe it. And it's sort of necessary and inescapable. Yeah. It's a... I'm ignorant, meaning every time my friends who are atheists or friends who are Buddhists or friends who are Mormons or I myself or I'm in a Mormon testimony meeting and I have beloved people in my word um, pronouncing on this is the way reality is, um, then I'm then I love them and I interpret what they mean. But for me, if I were grappling through what that means, um, I don't know very much about anything because I'm too small. It seems to me that it's my existence in this wide universe of Higgs bosons and, and dark um, black holes in space and wormholes in space and stuff. I don't, I don't think we know how to explain a thought or a moth, let alone myself, let alone the magic of how trees know how to put their limbs out or, and achieve perfection sort of randomly. Um, I don't think we know much. So I find awe and disciplined curiosity and disciplined wonder to be a healthy spiritual and psychological place to be. So I'm ignorant, but I'm not nothing. I'm a person, I'm a man, I have a modest mind and modest and failing sight or hearing or taste or touch or friends or wise people who have written books centuries ago that I might draw from. I'm not nothing, I have memory, I have intuitions, and those are not small things. I have memory by which I can digest experience and have it challenge me or inform me or shape and reshape, break me and reconstruct me or allow me to reconstruct, allow perhaps God to help reconstruct me. Those are in their own way infinitely rich, and yet I'm infinitely small in the universe that's paradoxical, but one of those 
polar truths that I think are both true. Did I forget your question? No. That's no. just a little elaboration no, on those right. points you alluded to. Yeah, the, the, there's both humility there and a, a sense of knowing nothing and a real belief that it's important to learn as much as we can, that we can learn. Yep. In spite of how little we know <laughs> or could ever know. Um, you talk about not being able to escape your culture. This is a really important foundation because, you know, as I I'd mentioned in my um, Sunstone YSA talk, you know, if you cut a tree down and then try and replant, I know you can you can replant a branch, but if you cut down an entire entire tree and replant it, chances are without the root system, it's it's not going to grow. Yeah. And that's I was trying to speak to this idea of the fact that we are raised in and are constructed from a culture and that culture is not it's not easy to escape and potentially it's inescapable and so i hear in this your statement of just sort of recognition that you're in it you swim it you breathe it and it might make more sense to bloom where you're planted culturally than to try and uproot it and start again is, is, am I at all touching on what you're trying to say with that point? Um, I think so in the specific. There are such things as unhealthy cultures. I could have been raised in a mafia family that have elaborate rituals of kissing and courtesy while they're prepared to take you out that night or whatever. So um, it's possible and even necessary to think critically about one's own culture. But in the case of um, a Mormon culture and many other cultures, I think there's so much good, so much rich resources. Um, not only can't you escape it in some ways, but I, I celebrate the goodness. Um, I hear all sorts of complaints by people around, so we could think critically about the people doing the complaining and what makes that happen, or weaknesses in the culture that are taught us by my personal likes and dislikes or my studying other cultures sociologically or historically and say why don't we do more of this good thing um, well we can and ought in fact our mormonism teaches us to grab onto every good thing and bring it in so yeah let's do that but i celebrate the culture um, and i celebrate being an american without a sense of superiority necessarily just it's fabulous it's rich it's good and it's inescapable um, so cults in a religious sense cults become cultures right cult like jesus um, the jesus movement is originally a cult or a cultus around which disciples gathered and then in its case it grew into a full religious tradition and and uh, broke away and became an independent thing from Judaism. And so Mormonism was a kind of a cultus and developed a culture. And a culture is like a group personality with mores and consciousness and assumptions and habits and folkways and brilliant insights and revealed insights, perhaps. Um, but it's like a personality, and that means... Um, is there something about John DeLynn we can criticize in his personality or Philip Barlow or Mormonism? Duh. So, sure, I think it's a great cause of celebration. Um, I find it 
rich and wonderful and um, take nourishment. I celebrate staying planted in it. But that doesn't mean I'm brain dead or don't want to fix things in my own personality that I come to see um, have been damaging or limiting or ugly. Um, there's certainly some of that in the group personality called Mormon culture. And is there a recognition or a decision on your part that you will have the most success or the most happiness or fulfillment by working and operating within it than by leaving it or deserting it or trying to make sense of the world through some other means than by the culture with which you were constructed? Yes, because as I understand the culture with which I've been constructed, by which you mean Mormon culture, but of course that means male culture and 20th century culture and uh, Barlow culture and everything. Um, but if we're talking about LDS culture, um, as I understand that culture, part of which includes Joseph Smith's teachings, um, I understand it to be my task to seek, as I alluded to earlier, seek after that everything which is virtuous, lovely, and of good report or praiseworthy. And what I learn from my atheist Buddhist friends um, has all sorts of lovely, virtuous things in it, and I want to embrace that so I don't find um, that a narrow or imprisoning um, culture at all, except for limited by our educations and imaginations and intelligence and non-defense or defensiveness we can limit ourselves but i don't take joseph's teachings to be a limiting culture and i embrace the right also as joseph taught at least the seeds of um, to be critical about that culture if it's part of our culture to not just respect authority which can be a good thing but um defer like a coward to authoritarianism when when a person with authority gets authoritarian in a negative sense joseph taught amen to the authority of that person and we have learned that that's very common when anybody gets a little authority so um, any form of power i'm prepared to respect and see that it can be a valuable tool or influence for good and i think joseph was right and other philosophers um, that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, then I think within the seeds of my culture that embrace Joseph Smith's teachings um, that I take to be healthy and inspired, that I'm invited to be critical, respectful, responsive, but not brain dead about that culture and its if it's properly Mormon, according to Joseph's teaching, it's a very open and embracing culture. So I find that a fine place to be. In, um, in your response, I think, it's, I think it's fair to say you touched on some of the subsequent points. Um, your, your point seven was that you adjust and restructure your reality and value systems perhaps many times throughout your life. So there's a I'm, I'm, I'm going to kind of brush over a few of these just for the sake of time. Um, there's, there seems to be a real openness and willingness to change and adapt as life 
and experience sort of inform. Um, Failure to do that is a form of damnation, which is to say not, yaha, I'm God, I get to burn you to a crisp, but is to say you're limited, you're damned up like a stream is damned up, and that doesn't comport with the notion of growth or progress. So for you, remaining open and flexible is an important pillar. Mm-hmm. But I hear um, voices out in our culture in America and in Mormonism or our former Mormonism that makes um, a god of flexibility and openness. So flexibility is good to the extent that it's good. If I'm pole vaulting, doing that with a wet spaghetti noodle is eminently flexible and not eminently helpful when I'm in the Olympics if my objective is to get over that bar, nor is, nor is it to be overly rigid and pole vault with a long stick of iron is not going to get me over that bar. So, um, so flexibility uh, needs to involve um, some intelligent application to the task at hand, and one can be overly flexible and one can be overly rigid, but, but rigidity as such is not an evil, and flexibility as such is not an evil. Thank you for joining us today on Mormon Stories Podcast. To discuss this podcast with others, please check us out at mormonstories.org. To join one of our 80-plus support communities across the globe, click on the Support Communities tab at mormonstories.org. To keep this podcast alive, please consider a tax-deductible donation today by becoming a monthly subscriber at mormonstories.org. Audio and video for this podcast were provided by Richard Holdman. A big thanks to the Saber Rattlers for providing the music for today's episode. The Mormon Stories logo was generously donated by StudioCase.com. Come, come, ye saints, no toil nor labor fear, but with joy when your way. Though hard to you, this journey may appear, grace shall be as your day. Tis better far for us to strive our useless cares from us to Send your, your hearts will swell.